everybody. Welcome to the 58th episode of The Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, do you think the game designers at LSS have any idea what they're doing these days? Do you think, <laughs> yeah, like, they're wow. completely off the rails, right? Like, I think I have very much enjoyed Outsiders Limited, so I am pretty happy with them. I don't know. Codex of Frailty is a bit much for my taste, but they think they're doing a great job. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Oh, hey, Brian. Welcome. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Welcome guys. to the podcast. Love, love that glowing introduction to my work. I'm so happy. Uh, at least I know one one podcaster here has my back. I don't know so much about the other one yet. We'll see how this interview goes as we move through. Uh, I'll tell all the people that uh, I troll. I only troll you if I really like you and I respect you. So okay, good. Take I'll that take that for what it's worth. <laughs> and that's how you can tell I, I really love and admire Michael. You know because. The trolling never oh, ends. Oh, I see. <laughs> but anyways, happy to have you here, Brian. Do you just want to give a little nutshell of who you are and what you're all about for uh, our viewers and all that stuff in case anybody I, doesn't know? I hate doing this part of the podcast because I've, I've done so many podcasts at this point and I feel like it is very redundant. Uh, I'll just say I'm a guy who makes flesh and blood cards. And if you need more information on that, you can come to me and I will give you more background. Or you can watch one of the like 400 other podcasts I've been on where I have to talk about myself for an extended period of time. And don't get me wrong. I think I'm pretty good at talking about myself. Like I tend not to shut up. But at some point, there's got to be a limit. And I, I just think uh, know that I am here as someone who who works on flesh and blood. Officially a contractor, by the way. So not an LSS employee. I like to make that distinction when I come on. And I think I do that to buy myself a little bit of uh, leverage and creative freedom. So uh, you guys don't hold me specifically to anything I say. And and that's my uh, my defense mechanisms whenever I appear on a podcast like this. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so I think the bulk of what we're going to talk about is just kind of like the general like design iterations that kind of happen in the LSS, kind of like the nuts and bolts as to like how the sausage is made and specifically with like limited in mind, because every flesh and blood set that's had limited formats has played wildly differently. Um, I'll starting all the way back from like Welcome to Wraith, obviously the bread and butter, just kind of core mechanics and then um, arcane rising, introducing arcane damage. And then obviously with the introduction of talents, that's just, you know, taking things to a whole nother level. Um, but I guess how much of like, uh, the design, like testing time is focused around limited and stuff like that. Uh, it is a, a huge, huge part of the development cycle and it is constant throughout the development cycle. It's, it's not so much that like, Oh, the limited portion of the product is done. We'll move on to something else. It is just something that is constantly being updated, iterated upon. I, I think it is fair to say that we hold it on equal footing with the constructed formats. It is it is in no way less important. And I think that might be surprising to some people because, you know, I, I, I would say the bulk of flesh and blood play, especially from the competitive side right now, is focused on constructed. But I, I just think limited is such a critical part of what we offer regardless of that fact you know it's an impetus to open the product it's an impetus to find the product it's a good on-ramp for people who don't have you know the full collection yet they're just trying to explore the game it's how i really delved into the game like i i started with my constructed explorations for sure but i think my passion really uh solidified and ignited when i started learning tales of aria sealed that's when the game really you know locked in for me so i 
I think it's something that we just hold in such high regards and will continue to hold in very high regards. And I expect it will always, always, always get equal billing uh, with Constructed where we're working on dual format sets. That's awesome. That's really good to know. Um, go ahead, Michael. I guess while we're talking about how you're spending time working on sets, I'm curious, like, do you guys test sealed as much as like, or spend as much time on sealed as you spend on draft? Or how is that? We do not. Time split? Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so sealed gets a, a lower portion of the pie. And look, if we had infinite time, I would certainly assign as much to sealed. Um, but the reality is that sealed will not be played as much as draft. Uh, it's not represented at our highest level events, worlds, pro tours, etc. Those will always be draft formats. And so it is going to get a larger portion of the atten attention. That being said, uh, I think going forward, we want to look at sealed a little bit more. I, I think it is something that we're kind of inching up in terms of, of focus. And again, I don't think it'll be on equal footing with draft at any point. It just can't realistically like draft is much more intricate, uh, much more difficult to balance and, and really does demand that time commitment. Um, but I, I think we can afford to invest a little bit more time in sealed and sort of, you know, just, just give that format the little nudge it needs. And sealed is its own beast. It really has very different requirements when it comes to balancing that format than draft does. And oftentimes they fight against each other. So we continue to experiment. We continue to think of ways to kind of solidify the sealed process without negatively impacting the draft process. I think that's a huge portion of the work we have to do there. And we are very much still iterating on it, still looking at it. So, Yeah. Um, I guess it's just surprising to hear that just because like, you know, when you said getting into like Tales of Aria sealed and stuff like that, and Michael and I were getting into like, welcome to Wraith sealed. So um, just because like, for that on-ramp or just that, you know, two people hanging out playing card games, like it's much easier to get, you know, sealed decks going than it is getting eight people together for a booster yeah. draft. Well, here's the thing. Like, I don't think Outsiders fails on that level. It fails when it is exposed to people with knowledge like yours or like mine. It, like there, <laughs> there is a certain level of like, once you understand the puzzle, there is an optimal way to go to go about it. But if it's just me finding the game and I open up six packs of sealed and I play against another guy finding the game, I think the experience is very different. And that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about how uh, as we get further along into Flesh and Blood's life cycle, how experienced players like you guys, like myself, are engaging with these products. It's really hard to go back to those fresh eyes of Welcome to Wraith. And I think like if you sat down with Welcome to Wraith sealed again, probably your experience would be very different this go around. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't work or, or it's weaker, but just the way you're going to build your decks, the way your goals are going to progress over the course of a game, it's going to be so, so different from when you were first understanding the game, I think. And it, it's something we keep in mind in terms of like, we always ask the question, who is this product for? And I think Sealed is not necessarily intended to hit as hard with folks like you as draft is it is supposed to be somewhat of a weaker format uh for your engagement with it and it is important though that that format offers a really robust experience for those on-ramp players and i, I think probably I'm the biggest sure thing understand. you need to improve on sorry my watch loves to participate in podcasts <laughs> <It's okay>. uh, <laughs> the, the biggest thing we need to improve on is, is just balance like for a new player if you head out to a event 
and you are facing 60% reserves, that's not a good experience. Like it, it needs to be more balanced than that. And I think when we got to draft, Outsiders very much succeeds on that platform. I do think it is a balanced draft format, uh, maybe the most balanced draft format we've ever had in Flesh and Blood potentially. But the sealed experience was a little bit off. And like I said, a lot of that comes down to different competing uh, priorities between draft and sealed, but we're looking at it. We're thinking about it. And it's not something we've like thrown our hands up in the air and just being like, Oh, sealed's always going to be unbalanced. Like we understand it could have been better for the outsider's experience. That's fair. Do you have any follow-ups on that, Michael? I guess I, I do really like to hear that you guys are going to put a little more time into sealed. Cause I think both, even though uprising got a lot of like crap, I think the draft format was very good. I think a lot of the flack that it got was because it was the competitive format for so long. And I think, the draft format for Uprising was very good. The sealed format left a little bit to be desired. And then Outsiders, the draft format's very good. And the sealed format, again, leaves a little bit to be desired where balance between the, the heroes or classes. Because even, even Arachne still sees some decent amount of play in sealed compared to the other uh, heroes, but classes specifically. Um, yeah, Ninja yeah. specifically suffers the most in sealed, it feels like, just because of the nature of them needing those specific combo lines or blue three blocks that cost zero, just because their specificities are so high. Like, I think that's what makes them feel the most awkward. Yeah, I think a lot of that is kind of the realities of our heroes in Outsiders, right? Like, you think about Rangers. Rangers need arrows. They need to play. <laughs> I mean, you know, Riptide needs traps. Like, they need, need very specific things. Uh, Benji needs cards of a particular power. Katsu needs these combo pieces. Arachne and Azuri need cards. So it's, it's just very different. And like, there's a question you have to ask at that point. Like, would it have been worth doing something different in the Ranger and Ninja space to preserve Sealed if it creates that level of limitation but it delivers this really really compelling draft experience and i i think in this case the draft experience wins out however there's there's just got to be a way to find both like you're always striving for both and there are challenges with achieving both but rest assured that we are striving to get to that point so yeah i think one idea i saw on twitter recently that uh i think kevin brayer kind of pitch to you, which I really liked was the idea of just like capping a maximum deck size for sealed events or limited in general, just because if like the threat of like fatigue or just, just throwing all the cards that block three into a deck or something like that becomes a real uh, worry for a format saying like, okay, you can't play more than 33 cards in this format or more than like, or just make it so you have to play exactly 30 cards in a deck. So kind of, you have to make sure you have the best 30 for your pool. I don't know. That's Decisions like that might be really interesting as well. No, I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest with you guys. That's something we've talked about and explored internally. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's been on the table. Uh, there are, there's flaws with it as well. And I, I'm sure. not going to get into those flaws just because I, I think there is a realm of possibility of like, we, we may want to do this. Like it may work specifically for a specific format. Uh, maybe it becomes the way we do limited going forward. Like it is always something that is on the table. Um, but there, there have been reasons why we haven't pulled the trigger on it thus far, and we have to kind of sort that out and figure out, you know, exactly how things work. And, you know, I, I am so thankful for our community and the feedback we get from them. Like, it's, it's so thoughtful. It's so insightful. It's like by a ludicrous majority positive leaning which is hard in the gaming spaces like gaming spaces engender a lot of passion but they also bring a lot of negativity with that passion uh but I, the the suggestions we get are so so thoughtful 
and I'm so appreciative of them. And a lot of times we've already done them and we've already thought about them. And, and like, I don't say that as a means to like discount them. It's just oftentimes people are like, well, if they just did this, this is the solution. And we've explored whatever this is. And, you know, maybe it has upsides, maybe it has downsides. But I, I promise you, I'm always on the lookout for a good suggestion. And, uh, you know, you never know how the game will evolve. I think if anything, we've proven we're very open to how we're going to present the game and the way things are going to work. And uh, everything's always on the table. That's awesome. Um, and then I guess to follow up on that a little bit more then, um, obviously over the weekend we played in a big team sealed event and uh, team tournaments are uh, usually super popular. I know this weekend didn't wind up having maybe the turnout that everybody was kind of hoping for, but um, I think the a moment that I'll never forget now is Michael winning that semifinals match against that Azalea one life for four turns in a row. Like that's just going to be ingrained in my brain as us huddling together, talking about strategies and things like that. And I just don't think you get the same kind of interactions and highs and lows in single player tournaments. Um, is there any like design thoughts or uh, hope for in the future for like more team sealed or anything like that? I'm a huge fan of team sealed. And I, uh, I like you said, I was I was personally disappointed by attendance at Team Sealed in Baltimore. I kind of thought it would be a home run and people would be really excited to play it. I wonder if maybe we came to the table a little bit too late in Outsiders Life Cycle, uh, you know, if there's just other stuff going on. W- whatever the the case may be, I, I am sure we'll go back um, to the Team Sealed well once more. And I particularly like the way Outsiders breaks down to Team Sealed. And I actually am – I want to hear from you guys – your experience. You know, I watched some of your deck building process and it kind of played out exactly the way I envisioned. Uh, you know, did you enjoy the deck building process? Did you feel empowered by it? What What was your like practice leading up to the event? Did you do practice team sealed pools? I'm very curious how you engage with it and, and what you found sort of the deeper you went into the team sealed format. Sure. Do you want to take it first, Michael? Yeah, I'll go ahead and answer. I remember at first when we heard it was eight packs, we were like kind of disappointed because we played like, uh, I know in Magic, it was always 12 packs for Team Sealed. And then even the Realm Games ran some Team Sealed side events for Uprising and both times we did 12 packs. And I remember very much enjoying that format with 12 packs Uprising. All the decks were like very powerful and it felt like you were just playing very strong limited decks and having... Uh, a very engaging format and you had a lot of interesting decisions in deck building because there were just like so many cards you got to cut so when we heard it was eight packs as soon as that was confirmed i went over to rogers and we're like we got a jam we got a jam a sealed deck. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a big change and, yeah 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 and i think initially i i was really worried that there wouldn't be very many decisions to make in the deck building process because you're just like you only get to cut around 14 actions if you're playing 330 card decks and that's even lower if some of your rainbow foils are equipment so i was pretty concerned that the decks would feel pretty weak and the there wouldn't be a lot of decisions to make and it turns out the decks were pretty weak but there were a decent amount of decisions to make still um deciding like in our coverage deciding what we were going to do with our hurls between the ninja and the assassin deck uh how we're splitting up the equipment i think i think it it played pretty well and i think maybe there's room to go to like nine or ten packs especially if you do something like implementing the deck size limit that roger was talking about earlier but i I think overall i I was 
I was a lot more satisfied with it than I expected to be when I first heard it was eight packs, I guess. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you from our internal perspective, you know, we we covered the gamut. We looked at different sizing. Uh, we I think we started with 12 because, you know, we have a lot of magic players. That's kind of been the <laughs> default in team sealed events for a long time. You're looking at 12 and uh you know, again, certain problems manifest at that pack size. The, the biggest one is like fatigue, pile decks. They're a real threat. Uh, the, the block values in Outsiders are particularly high on average. There's a lot of three blocks, so it becomes very easy to just load your deck up with that. And in some ways, the offensive output values are not that high for Outsiders. Like they, especially when you look at a class like Assassins, it's a lot of zero for threes. Or if you're in the Azuri lane, it's two card sixes. And just over and over, those don't line up all that great against a just massive amount of three blocks, especially when you add solid defense reactions into the mix of which there are several in this set. Uh, also things like peace of mind effects, like it, there's just very good defensive options. And if you let the deck size spiral too hard, um, things can get out of control very quickly. That being said, I think the decision between eight packs or nine packs was very, very close. And that is primarily the thing that we were debating between and trying to get exactly right. And I, I don't think it would have been a failure had we gone with nine packs. I think it was very close to like a 55-45 decision as to what provided the optimal experience. Uh, if I ran it back again, maybe I would do nine packs instead. I'm not sure. But I, I think what is more compelling to me is that w there there is a world where you just throw a plethora of options at players and you design out the pile problem, the fatigue problem. And that is where we start talking about limitations in deck sizes. And like I said, not quite willing to pull the trigger on that for this set, but it's something we continue to look at. And particularly in the context of team sealed, I really want to go back to that idea because I think the idea, and, and it's always going to change on a format to format basis too, because you mentioned uprising limited and having 12 packs and that working. And that makes perfect sense to me. Like, I, I don't think you could do uprising team sealed with eight packs. I think that would be an unmitigated disaster. Nobody would have any fun, <laughs> but when you get to like the somewhat stronger generic card pool, you get to especially hybrid cards where you're now able to have decisions between which card pool you're assigning those to. I, I do think that outsiders has the potential to succeed with a lower number of cards. Um, but it's just something we're going to have to revisit when it comes to, literally every single set and i think again our players are comfortable with that like because we come forward we talk about these things and like why we're making these decisions they're not arbitrary we're thinking about them we're testing them we're running through them so i think if we have our next team limited event and we go okay this is 11 packs and your deck has to be exactly 37 cards people will scratch their heads for a second <laughs> and they go and then they'll go well i mean maybe they thought about this for some reason like there's some particular reason that they're doing this i hope we have that kind of buy-in that kind of faith from our player base and i think we do so that gives us a lot of comfort as far as experimenting and seeing exactly what works on a format to format basis yeah and i think what uh, an underlying thing that could be that you're getting at there is just kind of the more stratification of the cards uh, the more packs you need in order to actually have yep. functional decks. Because if you look at Outsiders, especially with the dual class cards on top of the generics, the cards are kind of wishy-washy on the top of the two heroes per class. Like there's just so much flexibility built into the cards themselves. Whereas in Uprising, that's not the case. A card is that's draconic just can't be played in Icelander. But not only that, like uh, in the draconic functions the cards that function well in drill my function so much differently than the cards that function well in five absolutely 
And I guess uh, to that end, I know there's something that Michael and I really want to talk about, which is like in the drafting process, you know, you've drafted a lot of magic and there was just so much room to pivot and things like that and splash a color, things uh, in that nature with just the flexibility of the game engine, where in Flesh and Blood, it just doesn't have that same flexibility. And that's led to a lot of feedback, especially in Uprising with like the drafting process feeling almost like you're on rails. I'm sure you've guys heard that a million times. Uh, given that, you know, you've heard that feedback, like, can you talk to or like maybe give some examples about like uh, addressing that concern? Yeah, I mean, Outsiders was sort of draft one at addressing that concern. The on-rails nature of Uprising, I didn't work on Uprising, so I came in with a perspective solely as a player, and I, I felt the same way about it. I, I do ultimately really like Uprising Draft. I think it offers a lot of really good stuff, and frankly, one of the most interesting things that I've I've never kind of seen, look, I guess I don't expect like retractions or apologies, like that's not what I'm here for, but there was so much talk about Uprising and Phi being the only deck to play. And I think by the end of Uprising Draft, that just became patently not true. Like it was just 100% false. It was actually an extremely balanced, extremely interesting format in the draft arena. Uh, and people didn't really ever back off that stance of, oh, this is a Phi format. So I, I was always a little frustrated by that. But I think that's just the fact that, like you said, Uprising Limited went on too long. And if it was a shorter period, if it was a three-month period, I think Uprising Draft might actually be remembered very fondly. Um, but when it comes to Outsiders, I had a huge, huge goal to try and open up the drafting process a little bit. And so many features, the hybrid cards, uh, two heroes per class, very different feeling heroes, frankly. Um, that was all very, very intentional to take things off rails a little bit. I think we succeeded to some extent. I don't think it was a slam dunk. I think there were possibilities and drafting styles where you could very much do like a magic type thing and sort of float between classes for your first pack. One of my favorite drafting styles was actually to do exactly that, have basically a, a split between two potential classes at the end of pack one, uh, by the end of pack two, be split between uh, which hero I was playing in the class and then solidify my hero in pack three. And if you have the proper seat for that, you really do get a lot of rewards for drafting in that fashion. And, uh, you know, covering the pro tour, I remember seeing some players who seem to have picked up that style and that was really, really exciting to see. Um, but also there was a mode of drafting where you saw a strong arrow pack one, pick one. It was the only arrow in the pack. So you knew you weren't passing anything to your left. And you said, well, I'm taking all the arrows and you just tunneled in like that. And to be fair, I do think that's important. Like you have to be able to offer that particular style of draft engagement to players who are not the elite of your game. So you can fill an eight person draft pod. Like you need to make sure that average player wants to come down draft with you guys and they can just go, well, I'm going to take all the red assassin cards and I'm gonna take all the red attack reactions. And I'm going to play this Arachne deck and it's going to be good enough a lot of the times. And I, I think we have to do a good job of balancing between those two spheres. I think outsiders was the first step in opening up the off rails process. I think you're going to see more and more off rail stuff as we go down the road. And then you might see some sets that return to the very hard on rails. And I think that's also completely within the realm of possibility. The main thing I want to offer with limited going forward is one <laughs> shorter 
play cycles. Like, there's just not a limited format on the planet. And I don't care if you're Magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, or Flesh and Blood. You can't draft a limited set for nine months straight. Like, you will just burn out <laughs> on that limited set. So mm-hmm. faster limited cycles. You already see that starting to happen with, like, things like the Return to Monarch draft. Um, but just being more open to diverse play experiences, going on rails, off rails, doing all those things. And I think it'll be easier to swallow the next on rails set when it's only there for three months. And then, you know, right behind it, the next set is sort of this experimental off rails thing. And then we're going to, we're going to flow back and forth between those two States. I think quite often. Awesome. That's really good to hear. Uh, because I know Michael, I don't know if you want to talk about Monarch at all. You've been really enjoying kind of like some of the flexibilities and like the surprising not maybe not surprising, but the true amount of depth in that that limited format so far. Right? I, I was quite yeah. surprised by the depth in mod. I think that's a fair way of putting it. Like there's there's a <laughs> lot of very uh, niche, like finicky interactions, ways to stay just like slightly open. I think Monarch is a really cool set, especially for really experienced players. I, I think it's great that they're getting to return to it uh, at this point or experience it for the first time. I think that's really cool. Mm. Yeah, I'm definitely by no means a Monarch expert. I think I'm like six or seven drafts in now and I've been having a lot of fun just trying different things and realizing how like just how open you can be where you take like powerful generic and then you take like a light card and then you take like some sometimes like I have first pick a light card, second pick a generic that doesn't really fit Levia, then third pick hooves because the equipment's so important. And then if I end up Levia, great, I have my shoes already set up. And if not, I've got a good start for another deck. And I... I've, I've just been very impressed with how flexible you can stay in Monarch early on after, especially after uprising and <laughs> yeah, but Monarch's great. I'm happy to get the chance to play in a competitive setting. And I honestly didn't think I would ever get to because when Roger and I started, Monarch was leaving. We were moving into Tales of Aria. We played Welcome to Race Same. Sealed. We played like one or two monarch seals we didn't really get it we just played prism we couldn't really figure out some of the other heroes yeah. very well <laughs> uh, or you want to talk about sealed formats that have some issues i think monarch is very high up in the sealed formats that have issues so i i get that yeah we don't i don't know how you find like maybe that's why we're so negative on levia for so long because i think levia and prism just kind of suffer the most in like monarch sealed because because the aggressive options are usually just a little bit more efficient in bolton and chain uh, but in draft, like it's crazy how much things just like kind of like balance out overall. It's it's been really interesting to see. Yeah, especially when you think about like this the skill, and this isn't take anything away from the earlier flesh and blood players. Like nobody has skill when they first start a game. It takes time to really dive into it and understand it. But the average skill of a flesh and blood player is just like exponentially higher than it was during the monarch days. And during the Monarch days, you would see things like six prisms in a draft and then the prism wins the draft. And I am very curious what happens this go around, uh, because I know that really good players are going to understand how to draft uh, Leviathan. They're going to understand how to draft Bolton. They're going to understand how to draft Chain. And I I really want to see what this format looks like with just the best players in the world battling in it. It should be very cool. Hmm. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then I guess since we just then talked about getting into Tales of Aria, um, here's a fun question for you. If you, if you were back in time, back on the design team for Tales of Aria, would you put Arcane Barrier and at, at a lower rate than Legendary in that format? Would you put any form of like Arcane Barrier in that set at all? I would not, I would not put Arcane Barrier. Absolutely not. I would 100% put Spellboard. 100%. That's fair. 
That's fair. Yeah. And I, I, I have uh, talked about this with my friends on development design teams uh, with James, uh, like how you, you don't need to solve the problem of arcane damage. And it's not a problem. Uh, games have to end. And that was important in the format with, with old in particular, <laughs> you have to be thinking about like, how are these games actually going to end? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I do think that the arcane damage was a really good solution to that. It was, it was really smart. And same thing with the dominated arrows of Lexi. Like both of those things were very, very important to the format, but you need to give a sense of agency where like, if I really do not want to lose to this thing, uh, I can, load up with spell void equipment and I have a little bit more agency over the fact, or if I do lose to this thing, I can look back and go, wow, maybe if I just took that spell void equipment over, you know, this card that didn't even make my deck, then this is a whole different experience. So agency, whether it's illusory or real is critical when you're going to introduce that type of uh, sort of unpreventable damage. And I think isolating it to legendary was a mistake. That being said, I love Tales of Aria limited formats. Like I, I, I think this is like kind of a niche opinion, but I find that particularly among people who started at the same time that all of us did, right at the tail end of Monarch coming into Tales, we just have such favorable impressions of Tales, despite what is kind of like a flaw in my eyes. It, it just hits on so many other levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it would be really interesting to go back and rebuild that product with Spellvoid and see if it sucks away any of the magic of the product. I don't think it would. I think it's just about putting that small smattering of arcane damage prevention. And it could have made a format, which I think is like a, you know, 7.58. Maybe it pushes it to a nine or 10 in my eyes. If it does have that mode of interaction. Yeah. That's a really good answer. Um, I guess I never really thought about it like that because um, you know, obviously the default answer people think they go to is like arcane damage, arcane barrier, one-to-one, but um we've even seen things like um what was the one at uprising with this the or we have the seekers equipment and quell now as well so yeah. there's we've seen like even more flexibility in like different types of damage prevention. even miter like helios miter like yeah. just you know i i do think uprising solved the problem of tails basically where you had this mode of damage which was harder to interact with but there was just the right amount of ways to go into it and just the right amount of arcane barrier and like I said, I'm also a big fan of Uprising Limited, and I, I think a lot of the the ratios of things in Uprising are really, really strong. Like the number of prevention effects, how they interact with the the spells in the format. It's just a, a really good blend. Yeah. And now that you mentioned Miter, uh, my brain's kind of jumping all the way back to balancing out for Sealed, or like maybe if a class is struggling in Sealed in particular, if they can start with like a token piece of equipment or something like that, or... Uh, like the phoenix flame token that obviously the draconic heroes were allowed to play if they were allowed to you know add like one or two token cards just to like bring them up a little bit i don't know there's all it's kinds all, of it's all on the table. such a deep game <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all on the table i mean I, I think you know just the existence of those cards in, in uprising show that we'll go about it in diverse ways like we'll we'll figure out the best way to do this stuff and we'll we'll break rules if we have to you know we'll give you multiple heroes to choose from we'll let you start with cards in your deck whatever we have to do to make the format compelling we're open to all those solutions so that's awesome uh, anything you want to follow up on that michael i i just think it is kind of impressive because these are all like really like different axes of attacking problems from each other like adding i guess like adding helios miter solving kind of i think the biggest thing it answers is Icelander would be really good going first if that card didn't exist. And now that, that card is in the game, 
you don't just lose if isolator goes first if you have two blues you can even prevent all the damage you would send sometimes and it just i don't know i like the way that you guys address these problems i guess i feel like i don't know it's good that, yeah. i think i think a lot of it is just being willing to take off the limiters like it, it, it's it's scary and your instinct when you do something outside the box like that is you know are we somehow chipping away at the essence of flesh and blood like is is this cheating like i think that's a fair question to ask yourself when you go oh you can just start with this equipment like have we cheated have we cheated the fundamental flesh and blood experience and i i don't think we have because i think that the fundamentals of flesh and blood are rooted in like hero versus hero combat and hero versus hero combat can take so many different forms. And we have this canvas that is capable of telling a lot of stories. As long as the story makes sense, as long as you can, you know, come up with a thematic reason why a hero should be able to act in this fashion, should be able to have access to these things. I'm, I'm all for exploring anything we can do to just make gameplay, uh, you know, smoother, more interesting, more compelling and, you know, make the best game possible. It, it really just comes down to that, right? Like just make the best game possible for your players and to hell with the rules. Like, we'll figure that out on the backside. That's that's Josh Scott's job. Sorry, Josh, but you know, we'll we'll break we're, the rules. We're fans of Josh him. around here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's a good fan of Josh and he makes so much of what we do possible. He does a great job, a tremendous job. And I, you only see a small portion of the bullshit we ask him to do. Like if you saw some of the things that we have put on his plate and been like, Josh, please make this work, your head would explode. But uh, he finds a way and you know, we'll keep creating problems for him and he'll solve them and everything will work fantastic, I'm sure. That's awesome. And then I guess uh, one of the things on the list that uh, I, I sent you with a list of topics, which is kind of rooted in that though too, is making this game possible means that uh, like balancing out what different people like in terms of like fun, because you have, you, you have Guardian players who just love fatiguing. That's just like their favorite thing to do in the whole world. And they just want to do nothing but block three cards, swing a hammer, block three cards, swing a hammer. And then you have other players who think that's the most miserable game experience in the whole mm-hmm. world. And they hate it with a fiery passion. And I guess like, how do you think about that? Or how does LSS in general kind of go about like balancing those kind of dichotomies? Yeah, I think the, the best way to address that is with diversity of play patterns. Like if if one person loves fatiguing and let's say 10 people hate fatiguing, then basically you want that one person to show up at a lower ratio than those 10 people who hate fatiguing. And you want them to still be able to have their fun, to still be able to compete, maybe to still be able to win a tournament here and there, but you don't want them to be a focal point of the game because it's clear that the majority does not want to engage in that fashion, but you still need to carve out lanes for them. And the more you're making diverse experiences, the more you're you know, expanding the hero pool, the more you're offering different ways to play the game in those heroes. You know, And that's, again, another advantage Flesh and Blood has is rooting our game in heroes. Heroes inherently bring so much different style to the table. And we offer styles that are so diverse, like... Kano is essentially playing a different game from <laughs> Reinar, who's playing a different game uh, from Icelander. Who is, it's just so, so different in terms of the experiences we're able to offer. And I think that saves us a lot of the time. Whereas uh, there's also some benefit too in that I think people will make suboptimal choices and do so knowingly. And that's good actually for a game. Like you don't want a game where people only make 100% the optimal choices all the time. That's 
chess and then we know how chess gets sorted out. That's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to imbue enough personality into the game where you may say, man, I, I know Oldham's the best deck right now, but I just love, love, love playing Levia. I can't escape this hero. It, something about this play style just tickles my fancy. I'm going to go ahead and register Levi for this event. And we see that happen over and over and over. And it's always fun and exciting when it does happen. When those people triumph, it's like a, a noteworthy story. They have their own communities based around their heroes. All that stuff leads to being able to offer these diverse play experiences over and over and over. And I think if you just like, if you really focus in on the core of the game, you really focus on making compelling heroes and compelling cards to play with in those classes. Some of this sorts itself out, honestly, because it is just so, so easy to go off the beaten path and to look for other ways to engage with the game. Um, that being said, though, like there are moments where we have to go, okay, this play style is deeply unpopular. It's a little maybe overpowered. We don't want our game to be about this. Let's build in some safety valves. And, you know, I, I think we're getting better at having foresight on those safety valves. Uh, we're getting better with working within our lead time. We're getting better at our internal predictions of where we expect the metagame to go, which allows us to be a little bit further ahead and, you know, kind of do things one step in advance. We don't have to wait for Oldham to become a top deck to go ahead and produce something like Van Brace to hold that crown. Like we, we are uh, very much aware of where things are flowing right now and we're making good predictions. And that's allowed us a lot of flexibility in how we address these things. Awesome. Does you have any other questions, Michael? So I have one that I don't know how much you can get into, but I'm very curious about how does like a set go from like initial concept to like <laughs> releasable products? Like, can you print. talk about that? Yeah. yeah print. Uh, yeah. I mean, I broadly, I, I won't get into too specific things like timelines or, you know, what our actual day-to-day process looks like, but essentially there's like this seed of an idea and, uh, the design team, which is me and James basically. And you know, that's not to say we don't get design input from the development team as well, but we are the ones who focus, especially on that initial design. Uh, you know, we'll kind of have the seed of an idea and we'll build layers on it and just sort of solidify the concepts and see where it leads us. And, uh, you know, as soon as there is a core, which is supportive of some, form of play we engage with it sometimes that's literally taking all the cards in the set piling them up pulling off the top and drawing hands off the same deck and ignoring class and just seeing like how do these cards play how do these function uh sometimes it's more pointed than that where you take all the cards of a class and shuffle them up sometimes you just start making simulated seal decks and you can engage in that fashion and just really get a sense of how things are interacting and once we get to a point where we're like okay this is starting to feel like a functional flesh and blood set. There's something here. There's something exciting. Uh, it gets passed over to the broader development team. And again, development team might contribute to some design aspects at that point. When I say might, almost certainly, like design comes from absolutely everywhere uh, within our team. But, you know, we start building things out. We start engaging with draft product. We start saying, oh, is this hero actually safe in constructed? Can we make this? What happens with this card in Blitz? We kind of highlight those real pressure points to address those real red flags where we have to go, okay, this needs to be safe. This needs to be balanceable. This needs to be fun before we can continue with this product to make sure, uh, you know, this is good to have in our game. And that's sort of like 
stage one flash testing happens like that. And then you start getting into, uh, you know, smoothing out the draft experience, start thinking about metagames. Okay. How does this affect the metagame going forward? What is this deck good against? What does it fail against? Uh, what are strengths and weaknesses? Broadly speaking, what is the play experience like? Is it fun to sit across from this hero? Uh, feel, feel is a huge portion portion of the equation at that point. Like, is it, you know, am I comfortable holding the cards for this hero, doing the actions required to move through turns? Does it remind me of the thing we're trying to invoke? Do my rangers feel like rangers? Am I, you know, trapping my opponents with Riptide successfully? Does it feel like they have to navigate a minefield of traps? I'm just checking on all this stuff as we go through the process. And as you can expect, it gets tighter and tighter as we get to the end of the development funnel. And it becomes more about, does this card need to have six power or five power can this block for three can it block for two is this supposed to be a yellow majestic is it supposed to be a blue majestic we start dealing with those really pointed discrete issues that are going to shape playability of the card uh you know how the metagame is going to respond to a specific card and it just kind of moves from there and then you know we're engaging this entire process with creative we're engaging with the the art design team we're thinking about flavor things like that it's uh, kind of, an, when you lay it out this way, an absurdly complicated process that I'm amazed we actually get to the end of and put out these products that, you know, all of us are so, so proud of and really are uh, reflections of so many people's hard work. I, I honestly don't know how they get to the point of this finished beautiful product, but it just takes a bunch of people who are really specialized, really good at their job, and somehow you end up with booster packs in your hand. It's almost like magic. Almost, almost <laughs> like magic, but a little bit more in the flesh and blood. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, on that note then, so uh, let's say you're back here a year from now. What are you hoping, broadly speaking, of course, no specifics, but like, um, what are you most excited about or most hoping for in the future of flesh and blood here? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's really manifesting at this stage of our game is the living legend system starting to exert influence the way it was envisioned. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing not that mad rush from the Starvos and the chains and prisms, but the kind of like slow sustained success. And I, I think, you know, Oldham's rise to living legend was kind of the perfect living legend story in my eyes. Like it just was around for a good amount of time. It was an extremely powerful deck, took some hits here and there, took some nerfs, uh, ebbed and flowed throughout the metagame was always a threat and deserved to be a faster living legend, but not like that Starvo type meteoric run uh, to the top of the living legend table. And how that interacts with things like introducing our Shadow Rune Blade and Light Illusionist replacements that we have coming, and that sort of cycle that we're really trying to get through with a non-rotating format. Like our non-rotating format is now starting to rotate a little bit. And that's a really interesting stage of flesh and blood to be in, I think for the first time. I think this is the first moment we're really experiencing that. And so if I come back in a year from now, I think the main thing I will want to check in on is how are we delivering on that experience? Did we do justice to the Shadow Rune Blade and Light Illusionist players who you know patiently waited for their class to return? Uh, were they satisfied with the sort of downtime they had? Was the rest of the metagame satisfied with that downtime? Like, did we appreciate the break 
from Light Illusionist. Were we supposed to have that break? Or was there supposed to be a replacement, you know, ready to go on day one? I think these are all questions that we're going to be thinking about a lot over this next year. And beyond that, just how we're adjusting to more faster rotating limited formats because there's there's going to be more limited it's going we're i don't think we're ever going to get back to that uprising nine months of limited like our goal right now is we're going to do a lot of limited sets in a row and uh you know i i saw some some data mining who some data miners who have sorted out that we're going back to back limited sets i saw that for the first time and uh, I I feel comfortable confirming that because we basically put it out there on the website. I think I have authority to be like, yeah, we're going to have back-to-back limited formats and we're really excited about it. And I would like to keep that train going for as long as humanly possible. And I'll tell you, we're doing a great job uh, getting ahead of our set design, getting more lead time for all of our partners to work with. It, and it just keeps getting better and better in terms of how far ahead, how comfortable we are with making this product. And I, I want to say too, I think that's on all fronts. It's not just the development side it is the op side and i know people are waiting on a world's announcement i, I wasn't even going to touch on that that's outside your scope it's I'm fine sure. no look it is, <laughs> it is outside my scope but I'm, I'm not blind to the idea that people want to know when we're playing worlds where worlds is i i get that and nobody wants to tell you that more than lss like they desperately want that information to get out there that team the op team has worked so so hard to kind of get ahead of schedule and i think they have succeeded just wholeheartedly succeeded on that. If you look at the calling schedule, if you look at the battle hardened schedule, they've done a great job giving lead time. They've succeeded with one exception. And it is an exception that is definitely not the way they intended things to go. And nobody is more disappointed by the fact that worlds wasn't announced, you know, when we sat down for the, uh, the banquet at the pro tour, obviously that was the goal was to announce there. It didn't happen. Uh, It wasn't because there was lack of effort. It wasn't because we didn't want to announce there. Things happen sometimes, and it's complicated to do this stuff on a global scale, but I promise you that OP team is working so, so hard to do better at this stuff, and with the one exception of Worlds, they are succeeding, and I think next year, they'll succeed on all fronts. I I just have every confidence in them in the world. They're just doing such a tremendous job, and it's unfortunate that this one, obviously, highlight event has hit these sticking points, but they're getting there. They're working through it. And I, I promise they'll get information to players as soon as they possibly can. Awesome. That's really good to know. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we uh, go ahead, Michael. I, I do think if you compare this year, the event announcements to last year around this time, it's like night and day, multiple months of additional, like it's night and day. <laughs> so yep. the, the, outside of worlds, it has been very, very much noticed yep. in my opinion. So and it's that's, that's not an accident. That's that's hard. That's I agree. I, it is kind of sad. It, that's that's hard work. That's uh, a team being built out. That's really experienced people coming and joining us and just doing tremendous things around organizing our OP. And I there's this one exception, and it just is what it is. Yeah, I think the only criticism that Michael and I, or maybe disappointment, uh, was just that there's no more limited calling events. Um, like, obviously, when we first started, there was the big limited calling in Cincinnati yep. uh, with Tales of Aria Limited. And that was, Michael says this all the time, like one of the major reasons why we you know, got into the game was just like, oh, cool, there's limited, there's a major limited you know, calling happening two hours away from us, all in. Um, and I don't think we've seen a limited calling since then. Yeah, I I am a huge limited fan. You guys know that. And I very much am looking forward to the day where limited callings are back on the menu. Um, Again, it's one of those things that 
you know, I, I see flesh and blood as this incredible achievement, like what these people have done working out of an actual small independent studio in New Zealand to bring this game to a global audience is, is actually mind blowing. When you see the work and you know, the people doing it, it is truly mind blowing. But I think, you know, I guess it's not unfair. Just the reality of the situation is you're going to be compared against games with the global, global backing of, you know, video game companies like Konami or Bandai who have been in existence for literally ever know how to do these things, or you're going to get compared to the Titan of the industry, Magic the Gathering, a billion dollar brand that has had 30 years to iron out their processes and how they do these things. Like that just is what it is. That's who you're competing against. That's who you have to be ready to hold yourself up to the standards of, and we will, but at the same time, man, just to even get in a position where you're mentioned in the same breath as those type of organizations, it's a tremendous, tremendous achievement. And this is me being a homer a little bit, obviously. Like, I, I see it um, behind the scenes. But And I'm not bullshitting you. It's 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 true. What these guys have done, uh, what these folks have done over in New Zealand, it, it really is jaw-dropping sometimes when you realize all the logistical hurdles they've had to overcome. Uh, and I, I think, like, limited callings kind of fall into that a little bit. We'll get them figured out. We'll get them ready to go. And I expect that they'll be a part of our game going forward for sure. Awesome. That's really good to know. And yeah, um, obviously there's so much that needs to go into a limited calling that doesn't need to happen for a classic constructed calling for like getting the product ready. If you're going to like stamp the cards for day two drafts to make sure people aren't adding things or things like that, that requires people to go through open packs, stamp the cards um so there's definitely a lot more logistics to it so but it's good to know that it's like on your guys's radar oh yeah i mean i just i love limited everyone at lss loves limited we all want these limited events present uh and we will find a way to make sure limited becomes uh just as much of a part of our game as it deserves to be as we want it to be and i i don't think your experience is singular i think the idea of being able to engage uh, with a product that way. I mean, I can look at my own relationship with magic. I don't, I don't have time for magic right now, or really, frankly, the interest in it the way I used to. But if I can go and play a limited tournament, like if there was a limited GP driving distance away, and I know GPs don't exist anymore, but if there was <laughs> a limited GP driving distance away, I would go play it. That's a, exactly the form I want to be able to engage in. And I think it's important that we offer that to flesh and blood players as well. So, Yeah, that's awesome. Does that uh, make you feel better, Michael? Yeah. It does. I'm very excited for limited calling. <laughs> He's so wholesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, and then I guess on that note, is there anything final you want to ask us, Brian? Is there anything you want to uh, ask the MNR cast or anything you want to discuss in our final uh, segment of the cast? Sure. So, so Roger, you and I have several things in common. You're starting your law school journey. We've talked a bit about that. That's one thing that we're soon going to share in common. The other thing is that we are both the other guy on a podcast fronted <laughs> by an absolute superstar of the game. I, of course, did the Arena Decklist podcast for years with Jerry Thompson, Pro Tour winner, um, you know, just an, a titan of Magic the Gathering. And then when I was announced as the co-host, they were just like, Who? That was that was just the rest, nobody had any idea who I was. And I was there for that. I was one of the people saying who back in the day. There you go. Yeah, I listened for a long time. Throughout my now three hundred plus episodes of that podcast, I have always had an element of the other guy to me. I think. Um, what do you, as other guy, 
feel about your your other guy ness like are you comfortable <laughs> being the second guy on a podcast are you comfortable do you want to show that you're not the other guy do you want to take over michael someday and be the person that is actually the face of the mnr podcast i will tell you i have exactly one accomplishment over jerry when it comes to magic and i i try and hold it against him whenever i can and this is the type of thing you have to do as the other guy you have to find some way to like prove your relevance i have a higher peak elo than he does that is the Ooh. only thing i can find to hold over him so i i try and bring that up whenever i can do you have anything like that you're planning to use against michael as you try and fight back against your other guy's status so i think the best way to do it the best way i handle it is to not take myself too seriously uh i'm when i you know give shit to other people or things like that or i joke around like i'm very comfortable taking it as much as i am giving it um, I think that's the first uh, key to just like handling, just doing the podcast in general, uh, especially like as it's grown in popularity. That's something that Michael and I are very, you know, thankful for. And obviously we, we love everybody who's listening and part of our community, but I don't think I'll ever get used to, you know, people coming up to me at like events and being like, Hey, I really like the podcast or saying like nice things to me from complete strangers. Like it's just something that's like so overwhelmingly like uh, something that I don't think I'll ever get like used to in a positive way. But that being said, it's not just Michael. Obviously, we're we're part of like the the Wolfpack team, uh, which is like I think just the twenty greatest players in Flesh and Blood at this point in time. So you got players like Brody Spurlock, Michael Fung, Dave Lynn, Travis, um, Andrew Rotham. Like, there's too many people to even like name all in like one sitting. And uh, just I think being in a team like that, not only also with them with Michael, does put a chip on my shoulder because you know I am competitive and. Uh, this past weekend, like I was upset we lost in those finals. Like <laughs> I really wanted to to beat those guys just to show, like, hey, they don't have to win everything. We could take them down. We could take them down one peg. They could still be better than us on nine or on, on most other occasions. But like on this one, we we should we should be able to get there. And that's kind of how I view it. Where just like as long as I am willing to sit down and compete at a game, I should go in with the expectation that like. Uh, I can win the event or that winning it is in the realm of possibility. And the day that I feel like I can't ever compete with somebody like Michael Hamilton or anybody else in the game, uh, I'll stop. I think that's the right way to it. do it as, as other guy. And one of the ways you find yourself in position as other guy is that you possess that ceiling, right? Like I, I think my average play is not elite. It's not world championship level, but on my best days, I can absolutely do that. And that's the mm -hmm. way I've always approached these things. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the things about being other guy that you do have to get comfortable with is that you're not going to get the same number of opportunities. You're not going to be looked at the same way, but when you get them and you seize on them, you get a level of validation that like feels damn good. Like I, I had a bit of a hot streak uh, at the, the launch of arena and I kind mm -hmm. of just like weaseled my way into a bunch of online tournaments and it was like me and 15 MPL players. And I just won a bunch of them in a row and was kind of crushing things. And I will always hold that up as a spot to just say, look, if I want this shit, I will come take it. I have this in me. And you have to kind of get comfortable with the idea that people aren't going to believe that. Like, even when you show it, they're not going to believe that. But you know, inside you have that level of confidence. I think that's critical to being other guy. Uh, I think you've done a good job with it. And uh, I think you have a good partner to be other guy too. So that also helps a lot is have, having a good person uh, to, to be sort of the face, uh, the competitive face of your, 
your endeavor. I think that's really, really important. And, and Michael, you also hold position as the guy very, very well. You're a great champion uh, for your podcast, for our game in general. So I think you guys do a good job with that. Well, thanks, Brian. appreciate that. You're very welcome. Okay. Any final thoughts from you, Michael? I, I got nothing. Thank you for coming on, Brian. It was really good talking Michael to gets you. flustered You're sometimes. You, you, that's okay. I, I, I've, interviewed, I've, I've interviewed Michael before. <laughs> One of my favorite moments was after – after Michael won the calling in Indianapolis and I put him on the spot and asked him who the best flesh and blood player in the world oh, yeah. was. And I could tell he was so, so uncomfortable with that question, mm-hmm. uh, but he answered it correctly in the moment. And he has, he has proven his answer to that question. So it's been very, uh, very cool to see that journey along the way. Thank you. I, I flushed him again. <laughs> you I did. got him again. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little I'm, less flusterable. So <laughs> that's good. Uh, it takes a real storm to fluster me up, that's for sure. Okay. But uh, I guess with all that being said, though, thank you once again for being here, Brian. Your insights were everything we could have hoped they were. Uh, you definitely answered a lot of the burning questions that have been on the back of our minds. And hopefully um, our listeners got a lot of it, just as much out of it as we did. So uh, thank you very much. Very welcome, guys. And with that being said, the next time you're talking to Brian Gottlieb, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for watching.